My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis. So glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, I remember one of the first church services I actually remember from my adult life was September 16th, 2001. It was the first Sunday after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And uh, I remember because we got there early that day, and it seems like everybody else did too. Uh, We went to a very large church at the time, and they were... Uh, usually not full, but sometimes full. And occasionally we'd have to sit in the overflow room. And sometimes that was because we liked the overflow room. And sometimes it was because it was full. Uh, But when we got there on September the 16th, I remember specifically, we walked into the auditorium about five minutes early. It was already full. And we got redirected to the overflow room and we went in the overflow room and it was already full. And what they had done is they had set out TV sets out in the lobby And they had kind of put up some chairs and makeshift rows so that people could watch the service live streamed on television um, because it was the biggest church service I'd ever seen. It was bigger than Easter, bigger than Christmas, uh, bigger than any service I'd been to. Now, apparently uh, that church wasn't alone. In fact, research has shown that as a whole, church attendance nationwide grew about 25% in the weeks and months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But that same, sur- that same research shows that by September 2002, so a year later, church attendance was back down to where it was before the attacks. So what happened? I, I mean, I'm guessing people didn't come to church and get all the answers they wanted in a few weeks and then walk away satisfied, probably, right? No, instead, I think, uh, well, I don't know what to, what to think. I'm no expert at church attendance. I can't figure out who's going to be here when anyway in this church, let alone churches nationwide. Uh, but George Barna is. George Barna is the founder of the Barna Group, and that's what they study. They study church attendance and uh, church behavior and things like that. And here's what he said uh, about the spike in attendance after the attack. He said, after the attack, millions of nominally churched or generally irreligious Americans were desperately seeking something that would restore stability and a sense of meaning, of, meaning to life. He said, unfortunately, few of them experienced anything that was sufficiently life-changing to capture their attention and their allegiance. So some people went to church for a few weeks or a few months, and when they didn't find immediate answers as to why they were going through what they were going through, they turned around and left. I mean, I think that makes sense. We all want to get answers uh, to what kind of suffering we're we're struggling with, but but there was an anomaly in the data, and it was a big anomaly. Uh, It was a big exception, a rather large one, because what was true in the rest of the country was not true in New York City. That in fact, in New York City, where the majority of deaths from the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened, they experienced not a spike in attendance, but a surge that lasted for several years. In fact, uh, 10 years later in 2011, church attendance in New York City was still growing and had grown uh, by 50% over where it was in September 2000 or before the uh, 2001 terrorist attacks. Uh, So according to an article in the Christian Post, attendance in New York City had grown to 46% in 2011. So 46% of the population of New York City went to church at least once or twice a month. Whereas before the September 11th attacks, it was 30%. So, you know, more than 50% growth. So why is this? What, what happened in New York that didn't happen in the rest of the country? Well, there's lots of things at play, obviously demographic trends, uh, immigration, changing family status, things like that. You can all attribute all of that to that. But also something happened. There's no question that shared suffering of the people of New York had something to do with a spiritual resurgence, that they had seen, heard, smelled something that the rest of us didn't get to experience. And they needed somebody to share their suffering and share their pain with. There's some benefit we get when we share our pain with others. Author and pastor Rick Warren said it this way. He said, the deepest level of fellowship is the fellowship of suffering. 
In fact, uh, he said that, you know, when you get together for dinner with somebody and you, you share a meal, you get kind of one level of fellowship. And when you do fun things together, you experience happy times together, you get a, a deeper level of fellowship. But he said the deepest level is when you suffer together. When you have shared suffering, you experience something bad together. The truth is that when people suffer together, they grow closer together, they learn from one another, and, and they gain from that. And while it's true that the whole country uh, suffered during 9-11, New York obviously suffered more than anyone else. So it would make sense that they would turn to God in their times of struggle. And that's what we're encouraging you to do during this series too. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Exodus 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these around you on the floor. I think it's page 51 in this Bible, Exodus 18. Today we're closing our series called How to Get Through What You're Going Through. And we've been talking about how to respond to pain and suffering in our lives. What we've discovered sometimes, God will use bad things that happen in our life to do something good with us. And in fact, what we've tried to point to during this series is that God wants to grow in us a living faith, a faith that isn't determined by our circumstances, a faith that isn't uh, influenced by the world around us, but it's a faith that if we're willing to walk through the suffering with him, he can grow in us this faith um, that, that will live and breathe on its own. It, that, that it's a faith that's not dependent on our circumstances. And so we've been using the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament uh, to talk about this. When we started this series in week one, we found them in the land of Egypt. They were being held as slaves. And uh, God said, I will lead you out of slavery in Egypt. And so we've watched as they spent a grueling 40 years wandering in the desert. And last week we left them right on the precipice of entering the promised land. You remember Moses went up to the top of Mount Nebo and he could see the promised land from there. And God said, but you don't get a go. And in fact, none of the adults except two that were alive at the time that God brought them out of Egypt got to experience that time in the promised land. See, here's what happened. God said, when he came to Moses, he said, I will lead you out of the hand of the Egyptians and I will lead you to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But God never said anything about the desert. And and so one thing I've learned about God is that he never gives us the whole picture. Like I know so many people that say, I just wish I knew what God was trying to do in my life. I just wish I knew God's will for my life. I just wish I knew uh, where, where, I'd, where he'd have me in 10 years and I'd know how to be obedient to that. But so many times God doesn't show us that picture. And from experience, I can tell you why, because it's scary. Because if God had told the Egyptians or the, the Israelites, I'm gonna lead you out of Egypt and you're gonna spend 40 years wandering in the desert and then you'll go to the promised land. They would have said, you know what? We're good. I'm gonna stay right here. And I think for so many of us, God may have something really great for you. And God's telling you, he's going to give you this thing. He's going to take you to this place. He wants to do something in you, but he's not giving you more than the next step. And he's waiting for you to be obedient. And I can tell you from experience that that's what God does. Oftentimes he'll give us the next step and he'll wait for us to be obedient in that. Because if he showed us the whole picture, it would scare us to death and we never want to go. But, But because of their sin and their disobedience, the people of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert before they ever made it to the promised land. And last week we watched as Moses stood on the brink of the promised land. He was so close that he could see the whole thing. And he was told by God, you don't get a go. He would never get to enter the promised land. And so here's one of the dangers I think we can run into when we think about our suffering is we can look forward to an earthly conclusion. We can, we can look too, too much for earthly deliverance from our circumstances. And we've talked about that a little bit, uh, that, that we can look, say, hey, if you're just faithful in this time of suffering, you'll eventually get to the promised land. But sometimes the promised land in our mind is not what God has promised us. 
Sometimes the promised land is something that we've kind of made up on our own and we think, I'm just going to hold out because I'm going to get that thing, but God never promises that thing. And so we said last week, it seems a little unfair that Moses didn't get to enter the promised land, but isn't it true that sometimes our reward doesn't come in the form of earthly deliverance? I mean, sometimes that thing that we're holding out hope for, that we're wishing for, is something that God never promised to us and we are never going to achieve it in this life. So if we can't hope... We can hope. If we can't expect deliverance, earthly deliverance from our problems, then what should we look for? Well, I think whether you're a Christian or not, uh, the important thing for you to do is if you're in a desert right now, is to start look at how God is working in the midst of the desert. Like what's he trying to do even while you're in that dry season? And so what we've encouraged you to do throughout this series is to think about that dry season in your life. What is it right now? That's the thing you're going through. When we say how to get through what you're going through, what do you think? This is what I'm going through. What is that dry season? And think about how God's working in the midst of that. So to do that, what I want to do is this. We were almost at the end of the story. I want to come back to the middle of the story. So we're going to not go to the promised land. We're going to instead go back to Exodus chapter 18. Just a little background uh, before we go any further. This is at a time when Moses is overwhelmed. Now, Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he's watched God provide food and water for them in the desert. Uh, but the people are complaining. They want to go back to Egypt. They think uh, slavery back in Egypt is better than starvation in the desert. And so they're complaining to Moses. They're complaining to one another. They're starting to fight amongst themselves. And when these disputes arise, guess who gets to kind of swoop in and solve the disputes? Well, it's Moses. And so this is what Moses has found himself. Uh, over time, Moses kind of evolves into this place where that's what he's doing most of his day is solving disputes among the people of Israel. And then to top it all off, to make things better, his father-in-law comes to visit. Guys, we all know things get better when the in-laws show up, right? Yeah, so that's what happens to Moses. His father-in-law uh, shows up. And the father-in-law, believe it or not, has lots of great advice for Moses. Now I'm being serious this time. He has great advice for Moses, okay? Uh, his father-in-law, Jethro, not to be confused with Jethro from Beverly Hillbillies because I wouldn't take advice from that guy. But this guy, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is here and he's in town. And here's what happens. He's watching Moses in these moments where he's helping people solve these disputes. Here's, here's where it is. Exodus 18, uh, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied. Now he's watching Moses solve all these disputes on his own. Okay, that's what he's doing. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. This work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now, I, I, I'm, I know some of you have father-in-laws who have fathers-in-law who have come to you and told you that what you're doing is not good, uh, right? Because they tend to always have great advice. But I think in this case, Jethro is exactly right. He's saying, Moses, you're carrying all this weight of the pain, people's pain and suffering yourself. Like you're, you're carrying this on your shoulders. You can't do this alone. What you are doing is not good. And I've got to tell you that as a pastor, I love this advice. I think it's terrific because I know if, if, I mean, I know we've got other people who have been pastors in the room before. We've got people who are elders. We've got people who are lawyers, who are in HR. Uh, we've got people who are just uh, teachers, they get to hear people's problems. We've got people that are just good friends and good listeners. And if you're in one of those categories, you sometimes feel the weight of this when people come to you, don't you? Like you try to bear the weight of everybody's burdens and you cannot do this alone. What you're doing is not good. We cannot bear our burdens by ourselves. We need people to be able to share them with. You can't carry this burden alone. And so if you're in a desert place right now, whether it's a, a relational desert, 
you know, you've got that relationship that's not working out like you thought, or it didn't work out like you thought, and you don't understand why, or there's no relationship in sight, but you always expected one. That was your promised land. We're going to get married someday, and we're going to have 2.3 kids, and we're going to live in the suburbs with a white picket fence and two cars. You know, that was your dream, and it hasn't materialized for you. You're in a financial desert right now. You don't know where the next paycheck is coming from because you lost the job or the business collapsed or whatever's happened. You don't know how to pay all the bills or... You know, you're in an emotional desert. Somebody hurt you and they, they wounded you in a bad way and you don't know how to get, how to get out of that. Or, you know, you're just in, in this place where you don't know how you got in now and you don't know how you're gonna get out, but it's a tough spot to be in and you don't know, really see what God's doing in the midst of it. And you're carrying this burden all by yourself. What you are doing is not good. You can't do that. You need someone. You need to be willing to find someone or someones to share your suffering with. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Like as Christians, it's our responsibility. If we want to fulfill the law of Christ, we have to carry people's burdens for them. We have to help people out with that. Now, I just want to acknowledge that sometimes it's easier to share a difficult time that we've been through, right, than one we are currently going through. Because time gives us a little bit of perspective that we don't have. We're in the middle of something. We don't see how God's working. We don't know how he's going to use it for good. And so it's sometimes easier to just keep that to ourselves. And, but if it was something that was five years ago and we saw how we came out of it and we have, you know, the benefit of some perspective from the past, it's easier to share that. But I think the problem with that is we never know how long these desert seasons are going to last. And so if we're not willing to share them while we're in them, if we're not willing to, you know, find some people to help support us while we're in them, uh, we don't know how long we're going to have to suffer with that. And then what you're doing is not good. And so I want to say that sharing your pain, that being honest about your suffering, it's really difficult. It's really only difficult for two groups of people. All right? it's, it's difficult for men and for women. All right. And here, I'm going to tell you why I say that. And I hope you'll indulge me, okay, as we go through this. But, but at the risk of being like incredibly chauvinistic and Stereotype, stereotypical. I want to tell you why this is hard for all of us. I want to start with guys. Guys, um, we don't like to show weakness. We need to be the strong one, right? So whether it's for your wife or for your girlfriend, uh, for your family, for your friends, uh, we don't want them to find out that there's a chink in our armor, right? So we've got to be strong. We've got to be bold. We've got to, we've got to, we don't want to share for that reason. But as Christians, we need to recognize that your strength can be found in sharing struggles with people. In fact, Paul, the apostle Paul wrote this, said it this way. He said, but he, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, this is God, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So let me ask you this. Would you rather work out of your power or Christ's power? I mean, if you're a Christian in the room, I'm guessing you would much rather work out of Christ's power than out of your own power. But even more than that, and again, I'm generalizing, okay? Guys, we're terrible at communicating our emotions. So even if we're willing to open up and share, guys in general are not good at sharing what's actually happening in here. Like, I mean, you can always tell when a guy's happy, right? That's pretty easy. Usually watching football or doing some guy thing, right? But it's hard to know what's going on when they're not happy. And so even if we get to the point where we're willing to share something with somebody, it often comes out as just one emotion. There's like one emotion we're really good at, and that's, I'm frustrated. I'm just frustrated right now. I'm frustrated with you. I'm frustrated with the kids. I'm frustrated with the world. I'm frustrated with how this turned out. I'm frustrated with whatever. I'm frustrated. 
And so while frustration is a valid emotion, I think most of the time that we're willing to say that, it's not really the emotion that we're feeling. And so guys, just as a public service, I want to give you a few emotions that might help you communicate better. If you're going to communicate with, with your wife, your friends, your family, whoever you decide to share with, I'm going to give you just a few emotions. This is completely okay to communicate these, okay? I'm sad. Sadness is a valid emotion. I'm, it's okay to be sad. I'm angry. I'm angry that this happened. I'm angry at you for making it happen. I'm angry at the people who did this. Anger is not a sin. Jesus was angry. Jesus had times where he got angry. It's, it's not, feelings are not sins. We can't help what we feel, but we can help how we act on those, right? Angry is okay. I'm disappointed. I'm jealous. It's got me all torn up inside, and I'm afraid to say it, but I'm jealous. I'm, I'm afraid. Ooh, that's a tough one to say. You want to show that you're weak? I'm afraid. I feel guilt. I'm ashamed. I'm grieving. Those are all legitimate, real emotions that we sometimes feel, and there are dozens more. And uh, Rick Warren, after, I don't know if you remember Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, uh, a few years ago, his uh, son committed suicide, and he and his wife did a series of videos and they talked about one of the things that they had to come through as a couple is to realize that there are no bad emotions, that they couldn't judge each other on how they're feeling because your emotions kind of come and go, right? And so um, this is important. Like if you are someone who's on the receiving end, if, if, uh, if somebody finally, guy or girl, finally decides to open up and share their emotions with you, I want you to, I want you to know how to listen to them and how to, how to listen to them accurately, how to do this in a way that is, uh, that, that is godly, all right? So here's what you do. Um, when somebody tells you their emotion, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm jealous, here's what you do. You say, thanks for telling me that. And then you say this. That's it. Because here's what I like to do. Here's been my tendency in the past. Um, you shouldn't feel that way. What did I just do? I just invalidated your emotions. You have no reason to feel that way. You have no reason to be jealous. He's just a friend. You have no reason to be afraid, honey. I'm sure it's all going to work out. And we invalidate people's emotions. And that always, that never works out well, right? If you don't believe me, try this. Um, next time you're in a disagreement with your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whoever, um, and they start, it starts to get heated and they start to yell, just try this. All right, this is a great. You're being unreasonable. You know what usually happens, right? Is they back up and they go, you know what? You're right. I am being unreasonable. That was, I am so sorry. That was not, no, that's not what happens. What happens? They get even madder because you've just invalidated their feelings, right? We don't want to invalidate somebody's feelings. You just, we have to be able to listen and accept what they're feeling. And then let's process that together, okay? So it doesn't really help when you do that. When you're in a desert season, there are no unreasonable emotions, in fact, you can't really help what you feel. You only get to decide what you do with those feelings, how you act on those. There are unreasonable responses to reasonable emotions, but you need to process it with someone. Now, ladies, here's why sharing your struggles is often difficult for you. And again, I'm generalizing, and I'm sorry if this is not you, okay? But ladies, uh, you're often more in touch with your emotions than we are, um, but you're often so busy trying to take care of other people's problems that you don't feel like you want to share your problems with somebody. Like you, I don't want to, I don't want to burden them. You know what? He's got so much going on anyway. He works so hard. I don't want to bother him with my little petty thing, you know, or she's in a really difficult place right now. I really just need to be here for her. I can't really share what's going on in my life. So some women, some women will actually like wither up and die inside before burdening somebody else with their problems. 
Well, what you're doing is not good. Maybe you've heard the old saying, when you share your joy, your joy is doubled. But when you share your burden, your burden is halved. And as cliche as that is, I think it's really, really true. You know, for both men and women and teens and kids for that matter. Like, it's important to have a safe place to share your struggles. Be able to, you know, let go your emotions and, and know that you're not going to be judged for that. You, I mean, you've probably heard the saying in, uh, in sporting circles, no pain, no gain, right? Or if you're, uh, you know, in weightlifting or running or whatever you do, he said, no pain, no gain. That means, you know, if you don't have any pain when you're done, you're not working out hard enough. And so you're not going to gain anything from it. Well, a lot of people have pain without the gain. Like that we, because we keep it to ourselves, that we allow ourselves to go through a really tough season and we never share it with anybody. So we don't get anything from it. Like our pain is wasted when we're not willing to share it. But Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul wrote this in Galatians 3. He says, have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? And in fact, that word experience is in some translations, it's translated as suffered. Have you suffered so much in vain? And I know like if you're in a desert season right now, or even if you've been in one in the past, but you haven't found a reason for it, you don't want that to be in vain, right? You don't want your pain to be wasted. You want there to be some redeem, redemption to your pain. And so I want to share with you two ways that, that talking about that being sharing your pain and suffering can have a purpose, all right? And these aren't in your notes necessarily, but you can write them down if you want. Uh, number one, sharing your pain helps you. That's really simple. We talked about last week how sharing our pain can help bring us closer to God, that, that he wants to use that to grow intimacy with us, and that's really important. But, but sharing your pain with others and helps you process through it. It also helps you determine like what God's going to do with it. You know, how's God going to use it for good? See, here's the thing with pain. Pain and suffering, they never leave us where they are. Pain will pick us up from where we are and carry us somewhere else and drop us off. And how we respond to it and how we share it helps us decide um, if that's going to be, if it's going to drop us off in a better place <laughs> or a worse place. Pain can make us bitter or better, right? And so we get to decide how uh, God's going to use that by how we respond to it and how we share that. You know, as a pastor, I get a lot of people who come to me with their problems. I get, you know, financial problems and drug problems and relationship problems and pornography and adultery. And, and most of them have one thing in common, and that's this. They don't expect me to solve their problems for them. And I'm so thankful for that because a lot of times I'll just be sitting across the table from somebody listening to what's going on in their life and my jaw starts to drop. And it's like, I can't believe you've done this or I can't believe that this has happened to you. I'm so sorry. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to formulate in my head what I'm supposed to say at the end of this. And I can always see when they can look at me and tell this and they'll look and they'll go, no, no, I don't want you to fix this. I just want to be heard. I just need somebody to listen. To which point I usually go, you know, good, because I don't have anything for you, but I can listen to you. Uh, and, and most of the times, I think what they really want to know is they want to know how, like, how's God going to use this? I've got this really difficult thing going on in my life. How can God possibly use this for good in my life? And so if you don't have somebody like that in your life, you need to find somebody like that. And maybe it's a pastor, but maybe it's a, maybe it's a good friend, a godly friend. Maybe it's a connection group leader. Our connection group leaders are some of the best pastors we have in this church. And it's one of the reasons we're so passionate about connection groups. And so this, the Apostle Paul, who's also a pastor and a church planner, uh, wrote this uh, to the church in Corinth. He says this, 2 Corinthians 7, 11, See what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Seven things. He says seven things. This suffering in you has produced seven things in you. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. In other words, he says, you guys went through a really tough time, but look what God did with it. 
Look at how God used it to change you, to pick you up from that place where you were and leave you in a better place. And I think for so many of us, we would never want to go back and repeat the suffering we've been through, but we wouldn't trade, we wouldn't trade for anything what God used it for in our lives. Now, we said all throughout this series that we get to choose whether or not, we don't get to choose whether or not we'll experience pain, but we do get to choose how to respond to it. And if we share our pain in a godly way with someone who loves us, with someone who accepts us, uh, it can make us better. It can help us. But the other thing is this, number two, sharing your pain helps others. Sharing your pain helps others. When we're honest about our pains and struggles, uh, first, it lets us know, it lets people know that we're human. I, I don't know if you know this, but you probably have people in your life who don't understand that you are a human being. And especially if you're in a position of leadership in, in the church, uh, in your home, in your workplace, in your school, there are people that look up to you and they think you're not real. They think you must not have any problems. You must not experience any suffering. You must not have any emotions. They look at you and they think, boy, he's perfect. She's got it all together. And sometimes when you share those things, it just lets people know that you're real, right? That, that, that you actually have emotions. You actually feel things. You actually have problems in your life. And that's important, one. But two, when we share, it gives us an opportunity to minister to others. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 13. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Look at this. Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So when we struggle, when we suffer, uh, when we experience pain, those of us who are Christians, that we should turn to God. And when we turn to God with that, we receive comfort. His Holy Spirit comes to comfort us. It's called the great comforter. You don't really need a great comforter if you're always comfortable, right? So God comes to us, he comforts us, and in turn, we can comfort others who are going through pain and suffering. And, and this, is a, this makes total sense, right? And it's true everywhere you look in society, among Christians and non-Christians. I mean, this is why, who's better equipped to minister to alcoholics than alcoholics, right? I mean, who's better equipped to help victims of rape than other rape victims? You know, it's why you have support groups for women with infertility and women who've had abortions and people with cancer and cancer, kids of cancer survive or kids of cancer victims. And, uh, you know, all, most of these people are people that at some point have gone through this experience and they've been comforted. They've been comforted by God and they want to use that experience to comfort others who are going through the same thing. And, you know, just so you know, because we're in church, I'll tell you, helping others also means sharing the gospel with them. We talked about this during our profile series, how sometimes your, uh, your personal story can be a platform to share the story of God, right? That you can use our personal story and how we've gone through, how God helped us through it, and we can use that to share the story of God with people. You know, if you've read much of the New Testament, you know the Apostle Paul had a pretty rough life before becoming a Christian. He, he kind of sums it up a little bit in 2 Corinthians 11. He wrote this. This is just a, a brief overview of the ministry of Paul, the Apostle. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, the Jewish people believed that if you gave somebody 40 lashes with a whip, it would kill them. So they would give them only 39. Paul got that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 
I have constantly been on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Come to Jesus, everybody. It's a great life. This is what Paul's life was like. This is what he said. All this suffering, all this pain, he could give up. He could turn away from God, but he didn't. Look what he wrote instead in Philippians 1. He said this, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, now what's happened to him? All that stuff I just read. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. See, Paul had no doubt in retrospect, right? In hindsight, he had no doubt that everything he'd gone through had a purpose to it, that his misery became his ministry, right? That, that, that everything that we go through can become a platform from which to shout the mighty name of Jesus if we're willing to. If we're willing to share our suffering, it can help us and it can help others. Our misery, our misery can become our ministry. I want to share with you a story today as we close out our message. It's a, a story that I know many of you have followed closely. Um, it's the story of our very own Cameron and Carissa Sprinkle. And uh, you know by now that the story has a happy ending. But what I want you to see from this is how they were able to watch God work in the midst of their desert season. Take a look. When we were in the middle of our desert season, I felt like I had to be strong for Carissa. I kept defending God and proclaiming his goodness and telling her to trust his plan. But eventually there was a Sunday morning when we got done leading worship and I kind of wandered backstage and I sat down by myself in the dark and I cried out to God and I said the most aggressive two-word question I've ever asked, why us? And in his gentle way, I felt like I heard the Lord reply to me. You know, sometimes people ask me, what do you mean God spoke to you? Like, what, what's that like? And my best way that I can explain it is that I will try to clear my mind of all my thoughts and I'll just simply ask God questions. And if whatever comes into my mind next is too... Uh, profound or too gentle or too wise to have been something that I manufactured myself, then I attribute those thoughts to the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, when I said, God, why us? I heard him say, because you have a lot of people watching you and I want to teach all of you something. And I broke down and I cried because I felt like now I understood that there was a, a purpose to my pain. And I felt really validated in that moment that God was saying, yes, I see you. And yes, I'm doing something with all of this. So from that moment on, I would determine to make the most of our pain by sharing it. The more I processed it and the more that God spoke to me, too, I saw what, um, what a privilege it was and what an honor it was and what could come from this. So we made a video uh, where we shared our struggle with infertility. We posted it on Facebook and we were completely overwhelmed uh, by the response that we got. We had so many comments come in. I got so many messages and that kind of led to um, being able to start a group for women, local women who are struggling with the same thing. And so we've met uh, now and then and we talk on Facebook all the time and it's just created a community and a team of us who are sort of um, struggling together. It's been much less isolating doing it that way. The video got shared 173 times on Facebook, which was crazy. And I began to sense this urgency because I now began to see uh, the influence that God was giving us in our desert 
and I began to see the desert as a closing window because I knew that if God ever did give us a baby, that would change the way that we had influence on people. So I understood strategically that God was giving us a billboard and we had to decide what we wanted to put on that billboard. We had to decide what our message was. And I didn't want our message to be something that was only true for us. I didn't want our message to be that if you pray hard enough, God will give you a baby. Because the truth is not everybody's gonna get a baby. I just really thought that reaching the promised land wasn't the point of our story, partly because God had never promised us a baby. So we decided that what we wanted to put on our banner is that God is always faithful, whether you can see it or not. Faithfulness isn't deliverance to the promised land. Faithfulness is having him by your side through the desert. Dark weeks and months would go by where we weren't hearing God's voice, where we weren't seeing his, his goodness or his faithfulness in our lives the way that we wanted to see it. And I remember saying at one point to God saying, uh, my friends, my family, and my church community have all been incredibly faithful to me. Where have you been? And again, his gentle way of replying, he said, that's how I was faithful to you. And that's a faithfulness we wouldn't have seen if we hadn't shared our burdens with others, if we hadn't shared our burdens with our connection group, if we hadn't shared it with our family, if we hadn't shared it with our church family. We would not have seen God use them to be faithful to us if we hadn't shared our pain. We did end up having a baby. Scarlet Faith was born um, in October, and she has been literally everything that we've ever hoped she would be. But the blessing of receiving her was not the point of our story. You know, we still have people from time to time who will come up and share with us or send us a message telling us what they learned from us during that season. And it reminds me of that promise that God gave us. He said, a lot of people are watching you, and I want to teach you all something. So in that season, I learned that God is always faithful, even though that may not always look how we want it to look. And I also learned the value of sharing our pain. Now that doesn't mean making a big video and posting it on Facebook the way that we did, but it does mean making a conscious effort to connect with others and be vulnerable with them. Because who knows what God could do with your story. I'm so proud of my friends Cameron and Carissa for the way they shared their story and the way they were uh, faithful even in the middle of that. And I'm proud of some of you who I know are in a desert season right now and have shared your story with me or shared your story with others. And you're, you're looking for how to make sense of that, how to make uh, a purpose out of your pain. And, and if you're in that season right now and you're doing it alone, I just want to tell you what you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not good. And, and if, if you're not a Christian, I just want to say this. We've spent four weeks in this series now, and all along we've told you that the, the great thing about the desert is that God promises to be with us. And if you're walking through this without God in your life, I don't know how you do it. I mean, I've got great respect for the strength that you're showing, but man, wouldn't you like to have the strength of Christ coming right alongside of you and walking you through that difficult time? And so if, if that's you, if you're here today and you've been through this whole series and you've not been walking with God through it, I just want to give you an opportunity. I'll be up here after the service and uh, some of our prayer team will be up here. We'd love to pray with you and talk about your next step that Christ might be calling you to. But, but if you're a Christian, here's my question for you. Are you willing to share your suffering? Are you willing to share your pain for your benefit and for others' benefits? Uh, will you let your misery become your ministry? 
As I was preparing this week, I noticed that the book of 2 Corinthians has an awful lot to say about pain and suffering. And so if you're looking for extra reading this week, some supplemental study material, 2 Corinthians would be where I'd point you to. Uh, But here's what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 4. He said this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And you know, one of the ways that we constantly remember the death of Jesus is through the taking of communion together um, as a church. When we do that, the Bible tells us that we take communion, that we remember the death of Jesus until he comes again. And so we get the opportunity to do that as a church family tonight. And here's how we do communion as a church, because I know we've got some visitors in the room. If you're uh, not from Genesis, you're welcome to take communion with us as long as you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come up. As soon as I'm done here, I'll dismiss you to go. There are four tables, two in the front and two in the back. If you're not a Christian, by that, I mean, if you've never made that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, here's what I want you to do. Just let this moment pass. Don't, don't come take communion. Uh, the band's going to sing a song here in a minute. You can look at the words on the screen and see what they mean to you. Um, but when you come up, you'll notice that there are two cups stacked together. The, the bread is on the bottom. That represents the body of Christ. You'll take that first and remember that his body was broken for you. And then the juice is on the top, and that represents the blood of Christ. And you'll take that next and remember that was spilled for you. And if you've got something in your life, I just invite you to pray uh, before you take that communion. Pray to God. Um, You pray, ask him what you want to ask him. Give him a chance to respond. And then the band's going to close up with a song. You're dismissed to come get communion.